Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by my old pals, Evan Grant and David Moore. Fellas, Evan and I are still in Houston. We'll be, uh, after we take this, we're going to head on back to Dallas uh, after the Rangers clinched their third World Series appearance ever. It's kind of unbelievable. Oh, I, I thought you guys wanted to lead off and talk about how the facts since San Francisco destroyed Dallas, the Cowboys are one and zero, and the Niners and Eagles combined are one and two. I thought that was <laughs> no. kind of the, the the Metroplex is kind of latched onto that. Are, are, are we not going to start there? No, no, we're not. We're not latching onto that, David. Sorry, sorry, we oh. didn't go there for you. Oh, um, okay. It is. It is always a little bit. Uh, um, uh, disconcerting is the wrong word, but to me, what, when the Rangers make the playoffs and go this long in the playoffs, which doesn't happen very often, it kind of throws off my whole fall. You know, it, it feels like, you know, this is supposed to be football season, and to me, it still feels like baseball season, you know, as long as the Rangers are playing. Um, and and there is something really special about fall baseball. It is a lot of fun. Um, it there, You know, when it's, it's a little cool outside, although you wouldn't know it, you know, we're here in Houston, and it's just as hot as ever. Uh, and, of course, the roof's closed, so that doesn't make any difference. But depending on who the Rangers play, whether that's Philadelphia or Arizona, uh, one of those places, Arizona, has a, its own roof. Um, uh, Philadelphia would be the only one that doesn't. So we, we will find out uh, tonight or after this is being taped exactly who the Rangers are going to play in the World Series. But, uh, David, I'm interested in getting your thoughts about uh, the Rangers getting here to this point because I, I got to tell you, uh, I'm, st- I'm still a little stunned that the Rangers have, have made it to the World Series this time. Uh, I, I'm, again, certainly don't follow as closely as either one of you. Uh, I'm, I'm flabbergasted. I really am. Uh, I, I thought this was a good team, but I thought it was a uh, – the, the – streaky nature of this team that had been displayed time and time again, especially in the stretch run. Um, I, I thought that, um, you know, once, once they started winning all of these games on the road where, where they struggled during the regular season, uh, and, and early I went, well, okay, the, you know, they're jumping to these early leads. And so they haven't had to go to their bullpen, which is where this thing can unravel and really undercut the confidence of a team and just alter the momentum, you know, at the snap of a finger. So uh, certainly they can't avoid dipping into that and that uh, soft underbelly of the of the bullpen to be exposed. Uh, and and after, after it broke, after they got up 2-0 on the Astros and then lost three straight, especially in the way uh, they lost that third game. To me, it just seemed to be playing into the narrative that we'd seen over the last six to seven weeks of the regular season, which is a team that would get on a, on a roll, win six to eight straight, and then the moment it broke, the moment the fever broke, you would see them lose five to six in a row uh, before starting another streak. So I, I thought that was – I thought they were – were lined up to repeat that uh, negative destiny, if you will. And uh, to see their response uh, in Houston as, as decisively as it was, was was really eye-opening. This I've never seen a team this good be this – I've never seen a team this erratic be this good in the postseason. Yeah. Things certainly lined up well. Evan, we didn't really talk about that last night. We – during the game, you know, just riding on deadline, there's not a lot of chatter about what's happening during the game as it's going on. We didn't talk afterwards about, you know, story ideas and things we were going to do this week. Um, but I'm wondering, uh, in that game last night, if there was a point, I mean, early on, obviously, when they started to pile up runs on Ty France, I guess that was the fourth inning. And, and I, I thought that was obviously a key to the game, they're winning it, they're piling it on there. But that Dusty Baker left him in there. I guess I think France got one out, uh, pretty much like the the Rangers did against Christian Javier to start the game. Got one out, and he gave up what four hits and a walk and four runs before he took him out. And I just thought, you know, the game's over now, man. Unless the Rangers just blow up, 
you have, you know, you, you showed you weren't going to be hesitant about going to your bullpen, but at that point he didn't. And that, and that question didn't get asked. Well, it did get asked a little bit afterwards, but I, I didn't get into a satisfactory explanation. What'd you think, Kevin? Well, I think I turned to you. I was pretty much flabbergasted. It was already six to two when Garcia came up with runners on second and third. And for some reason, the Astros decided to pitch to him again. And I know, you know, he had struck out four times in game six, uh, but that was before the grand slam. And that was before the the big hit in the first inning. And that was before the home run in in the third inning. I thought it was, I thought it was a, uh, I don't know that it decided the series in any way. Uh, but I, I certainly thought it was a man, a an overt and egregious managerial mistake to allow France to pitch to to Garcia there with a base open, um, uh, and not set up a potential inning-ending double play with Mitch Garber coming up behind him. It uh, and and Adolis punched a single. You know, didn't didn't swing too big, didn't chase. Punched a single through the left side, through a drawn-in infield, scored two more runs. And at that point in time, Kevin, we looked at each other, and there were people who either decided that they really needed a margarita at that minute or who may have been going home. <laughs> yeah, they, they were lining up. There's no question. Well, I, you know, it, it, Dusty was asked about that at the press conference after the game about why didn't you uh, intentionally walk Adolis uh, at some point, certainly, and certainly at that one, as you said, it was the ideal time to do it. And he said, well, you know, the, wh- why didn't they uh, walk Jordan? It's like, they did. The Rangers twice gave up an at-bat when they, they got behind against him, 2-0, 3-0. They just said, that's all right, go ahead and go down to first base. And, and you know, Alvarez was unbelievable. In the game last night, I think he, what, he had a walk and three singles. But he didn't do the big damage against the Rangers last night. And I don't think he had homered oh. since three. Was that it? Maybe it was his last home Look, run. If, if, if the Astros had won the ALCS, it was going to be a really close vote between Alvarez and Altuve for MVP. Alvarez did Alvarez did an outstanding job. It does not matter the situation. The, the Rangers did not face an overt situation with a game on the line and a base open to set up what could have been a double play with a slow runner behind them. The Astros did. And so I thought it was a managerial mistake on Dusty's part. And listen, I, maybe I'm caught up in the narrative. Maybe I'm caught up in, in the success. But to me, I have watched everything that has taken place during this postseason. And you see why Bruce Bochy has won 14 of the last playoff series in which he's been involved. Why the last time the guy lost a World Series, it was to the best team of the last 100 years the 98 New York Yankees, every move was pretty much perfect um, to this point. Even even to this point, you know, we in these parts, Kevin, we've debated over the last 12 years, why in the hell did Ron Washington not put Andy Chavez out in the right field in the ninth inning in game six, right, um, when they had taken a lead? And I think you and I can both freely admit, having been there at that moment and also being caught up in deadline, Neither one of us said, hey, make the defensive substitution until it was too late when it, it, it burned them. But there were questions in game six about why aren't you starting Evan Carter, who's been your leading hitter in the postseason, against a left-hander. The minute the Rangers took the lead, the minute the Rangers took the lead in the fourth inning, Evan Carter was out in left field. He's a superior defender, and it became immediately about, at that point, about run reduction and not and not run production, and he was out there. The guy is on top of everything that goes on in the game. I, I still go back to what Mike Maddox said about him earlier this year, that he walks slow, and he talks slow, and he thinks fast. And I think in some regards, he's real happy if you want to think that Bruce Bochy's a little bit slow. Um, he's about three steps ahead of you managerially and, and how he's thinking. Um, and I think he was a huge asset in this in, in this series. But that I don't want to take away from anything that, that took place on the field and execution-wise. Adolis Garcia was special. Um, the, the 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 twin the, the twin pitching efforts of, of Nathan Uvalde and Jordan Montgomery have been special. And look, Jose Leclerc had a horrible blown save and came back and, and pitched really tough. So um, 
this team, it's like Chris Young said last night, it's not always a team with the most talent. It's the team with the right talent and the team that's playing the best, and this team's playing the best right now. Yeah, there's no question about that. Uh, and, and you know, we've always said that. You just have to get to the postseason, first of all, and then anything can happen, right? Uh, you, you see all kinds of crazy stuff happen. You know, it's like that game last night. Christian Javier goes one-third of an inning. Evan, that was the, what, the shortest start ever in the playoffs? Is that is that correct? It was uh, – it was a shortest game seven start. Game seven. Shortest start. game seven start uh, since nineteen the nineteen forty five World Series. Um, yeah, and I think you can make the case that Javier presented more issues uh, for the Rangers before that game uh than even justin verlander i mean verlander was very good in this series he didn't win either start uh which is really crazy to think about um but you know javier has that really special fastball you know high spin rate and so it doesn't it's not sinking as much as other it appears to be rising because of that and i noticed before that game that bochi said yeah it's even a little it's like an inch higher now and it's like when he said that, it kind of intrigued me that that they noticed that, right? And it made you feel like that they had, all right, we've, we've done a little extra preparation here for this, and and we're seeing what he's doing now. And they did get on top of those balls. The the, the ball that Seager hit, uh, the home run, the four hundred forty foot blast. My gosh, that ball landed in the second deck, uh, and then afterwards. Uh, as, as one of my sons said, he thought that he w- he broke Tony Beasley's hand when he slapped it when he went by third base. And, uh, you know, if you if you watch the Rangers any length of time since Corey Seager has been here, it's like an automaton out there. Uh, good play, bad play, you, you would never know it when he, whenever he does anything. It's just always the same. And uh, and yet he did that. And then when he went into the dugout, well, we have, you know, pictures. I, I don't know if they run the paper or not. Uh, but Seager was just – you know, joyous is the only way to describe it. He was just going up and down the dugout. And and uh, I asked uh, Bruce Bochy about that and Adolis Garcia both. And they said, yeah, they thought that that was a key to the game, that that when he came in there like that and, and acting that way, they were all jazzed up. And one of the things that Nate Lowe had said was that in game three of the ALDS in Lowe Black Field when Seager homered in the first inning, well, he said, I, I knew we were going to win. And I, that's what I had asked. Were there the same vibes, you know, Monday night at Minute Maid Park when he hit that home run? And they said, yeah, it, it was. And that's what happens when your best player does something like that. And not only on top of the display on the field, but the display in the dugout of, of all the emotion that was released at that point. Um, well, I got, I got the Seeger on the field last night right after the um, right after the trophy presentation. And I got about a minute with him alone and i i asked him you know about being excited and about the vision uh that that chris young had presented him and if if, if this moment um all felt exciting and he said yeah it's really cool he said it about in this tone of voice too um that it was a special moment and it felt really cool and i looked at him and i said corey this seems kind of factual for this very moment um are you having fun? He said, yes, this is fun. We are having fun. Fun is, is what we are doing at the moment. Um, and he also looked at me and he said, Adolis Garcia is a bad man. He's a very bad man. And, I, you know, that that's Corey Seager expressing emotion. He's not going to talk about himself. He's not going to say anything about himself. But when he, when he talks about his teammates – and he says stuff like that that's a little bit colorful in some way, um, you know it, it It means a lot to him in the moment. Yeah, it does. He, you know, my sons love that quote. They they love uh, El Bombi. And so when they saw the Seeger quote about Adolis being a bad man, they love that. That's going to be their uh, catchphrase now probably through the World Series. Um so let's talk about that uh, and the and the Rangers prospects going in the World Series. As we as we just said, you know we don't know yet who that's going to be Arizona or Philadelphia. Um, the Rangers w- got four wins from two pitchers in this series. Jordan Montgomery came back Monday night in relief to win that game after Max Scherzer started it. Uh, that doesn't happen a lot these days. It used to happen a lot in the old days when uh, starting pitchers would 
would pitch complete games like the old uh, uh, Spawn and Sane and Pray for Rain uh, in that World Series in 1948. Uh, that's what they did. Spawn came back and, and won his game actually in relief. Um, so do you think, Evan, that they can use that same formula again? Will they have to get a much better performance from uh, Max Scherzer if they expect to win a World Series? Well, I mean, Kevin, if you just want to do the simple math, look, you know, and, and this was possible. Um, the This was possible really at the outset, okay? Um, it's theoretical that with the way the series was, the series are all set up, your guys who go games one and two potentially could win every game that you need to win to go to the World Series, to win the World Series. You don't want to count on that, but no. the Rangers are in that position pretty much. They have won uh, nine games so far, and the winning pitcher in eight of them has been either Matt, uh, Nathan Yavaldi or Jordan Montgomery. And in game, I would expect that they will start games one and two in some fashion of the World Series, which means they'll both get two starts in the World Series, and you could potentially – Sit there and say, "We can ride, we can ride Monty and Nate, and everything will be great." There we go. Evan's really pushing that uh, slogan, hoping that catches on. People will be saying that a hundred years from now, right? Monty and Nate, and everything will be great. People and uh, people in uh, Dallas Fort Worth would be saying it anyway if they were to win a World Series. Um, one of the things. Before we got out of the press conference last night with Dusty Baker, I asked him, I said, you know, you've won a World Series. You know what it's like. The Rangers have never won a World Series. Uh, do you see anything in this team that gives you an idea they can break that drought? And the first thing he said was, well, they can really hit. Uh, he didn't talk about the pitching. He didn't talk about defense. He didn't talk about anything else. He said they can really hit. And he said, you know, of course, the old phrase in baseball is that uh, – when you lose and you get beat and there was nothing you could do about it, you just tip your cap and you, and you move on. And Dusty said, he looked right at me. He says, I don't like tipping my cap to anyone. Uh, and he kind of let that hang there in the air for just a second. And he said, but when you get beat like that, uh, what else are you going to do? Uh, and, and the, and the Rangers did just beat the Astros into submission uh, in that game. So, you know, they they didn't do that, even in the first two wins, really, uh, down there. The, the last two games looked like the kind of games that the Astros played against the Rangers at Globe Life Field when they were just pulverizing them uh, in those last six games there, which I think the I added it up. It was something like they outscored them 63-22, to 22, something like that, over the last six games they played each other at Globe Life Field. Uh, the Rangers turned around and did all of that, uh, Monday night. I, I just I always feel like you know that the old, another old axiom is that good pitching meets good hitting. Well, Christian Javier is supposed to be good pitching. Framber Valdez is supposed to be good pitching, uh, and the and the Rangers took care of both those guys. They didn't beat up on Verlander, uh, but they beat him. Uh, and you know it, it is remarkable to me that they are getting these kind of performances. They don't have as much starting pitching as the Astros. They, they certainly don't have the bullpen that the Astros have. Uh, you can make the argument that the offenses are very comparable. Uh, I think the Rangers' offense is deeper. There are more guys who can, who can hit, more guys who can hit a home run for sure. Um, but, you know, to me, the, the two scary guys in the, in the Rangers' offense are Seager and Adolis. Um the, the Astros have got three scary guys to me uh, at, at the top of that lineup. When you've got Jose Altuve, who's just unbelievable, uh, a Hall of Fame second baseman. Uh, you know, Alex Bregman, also so hard to pitch to just because he won't chase uh, and, and with a lot of power. He had a home run last night. And then, of course, Jordan Alvarez, uh, who is phenomenal, uh, just you know, there was a lot of talk early in, in the World Series about, you know, a lot of comparisons to Big Poppy and all of that. And at that point, Adolis really hadn't asserted himself yet. But in the end, uh, you know, was the, the scariest guy was uh, Adolis Garcia. Uh, and uh, I, I thought it was remarkable that he 
pulled himself back together in game six after the four strikeouts and hit the grand slam, and then just had a masterful game uh, in game seven. Uh, just two home runs, the, the single, as you said, not getting too big. Uh, they've preached that to Adolis uh, for years now, not to chase, and he still has that propensity to do it. But what's different now is that he will, he will at some point stop doing it. And you can just tell when he starts taking pitches and he's not chasing, uh, he's so much more dangerous. So is this offense going to be enough to carry him to this, this model, Evan? Look, Philadelphia is going to start Aaron Nola and Zach Wheeler and Ranger Suarez if they play him. And Arizona is going to start Zach Gallon and Merrill Kelly if they play him. And maybe this, Maybe the World Series comes down to, you know, which team, which team has the best dynamic duo. I will say this. Um, Montgomery and Ivaldi are just pitching at a level right now that puts them online with any duo in the game. Are they the best one-two punch in baseball? Oh, probably not. Are they pitching that way right now? Uh, they certainly are. And so I, I think that, in this in this matchup, you know it, it's going to come down to which pitching staff executes better against really dangerous, really dangerous hitters. I do think that if the Phillies advance, their lineup is a little bit more um, formidable for the Rangers to face than Arizona. Uh, that said, the Rangers did sweep Philadelphia to start the season. That was a long time ago. Uh, they played at Arizona in August, and it was really the start of of, of a uh, of a nearly catastrophic catastrophic fall off of the top of the American League West at that point. Well, it's not just what your offense can do; it's when you score the runs, right? And, and that's what, to me, kind of flipped the whole Astros series. I mean, they you know, the Rangers got ahead in most games, and so when you do that. The starters can pitch a little bit differently, and your bullpen potentially is minimized as far as the the impact it can have earlier in the game. So, I mean, it just pushed – it worked in, in the Rangers' favor, uh, I thought, how the, the script unfolded and when the run scored uh, in that Astro series, by and large. Oh, oh, for sure. I mean, and, you know, you – look, you score first in, in, in postseason games. Yeah. Put a lot of pressure on the opposing team, and and the the road team in this series won every game. Yeah, second time in a seven game series that the road team has won every game, and in a lot of ways, in every game that the the, the team won, it wasn't a comeback. Well, it wasn't really so much a comeback win as it was, you know, a team getting out to a quick start, silencing the crowd in that building, and kind of building on from that. Clearly, game six was a different story, but or game five was a different story. But the Astros still took a lead in that, and the Rangers did have the first comeback before the Astros kind of struck the death blow. Which yeah. will be interesting starting at home instead of the road in the World Series. And like you say, you're going to go with Montgomery and Evaldi, and then what's that first game on the road going to be like? It's not going to be one of your top two pitchers. It'll, uh, it'll in all likelihood be Scherzer. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and again, here, here's the thing. Max may not be Max. I talked to him for a few minutes after the game last night. He's not. Um, uh, he's certainly not pitching like the Max Scherzer of old. But with each start, he's getting a little bit sharper. And there's nothing wrong with having a guy who's got the amount of play, playoff experience that Max Scherzer does. Yeah, I think that that's a, a, a great point. It's always – no, he's not top of form. He's not. He's not even what he was when the Rangers acquired him. You know, the, he he was pretty good until he got hurt. Uh, so, uh, yeah, he hasn't got back that far. He's not even supposed to be pitching at all. He's supposed to be off for another month. You know, recovering from this injury. So it's amazing that he's been able to do what he has. It does make you feel better, though. It's one thing if it's Max Scherzer who's not at a hundred percent. It's another thing if it's you know. I don't know, somebody else down the line, Martin Perez is not 100%. It's not the same thing. So you know, there is that. And, and, and David, to your point, uh, so much of what the Rangers built this year and when they were in first place for, what, 139 games or whatever it was, was that model. 
we go out, yeah. pile up runs early, and then you know there was a long time there. What Evan would know this number, where uh, after the seventh inning, you know they were not coming back from those games. You know they, they were either winning by piling up runs early, or they weren't winning. You know they, they were not making comebacks. Well, towards the end of the season, they did show the ability to do that and to rally. And you know I don't know. To me, those kind of things always just seem kind of arbitrary. You know, uh, wh- where you're scoring those runs, are you clutch, all that kind of stuff. Sometimes it, the, the sample sizes are so small that you, you really can't put very much uh, credence in any of that kind of stuff. Uh, but they – This also yeah. goes back to when you get ahead, then what is the strength? Your manager in Bochi. And then he is dictating moves rather than having to react to what the other team does. And that's a big difference, too, I think, as far as Bochy's success. So it just, well, we just saw it play out in this in the postseason. No, there's no 100%. question. About 100%. Yeah, he's, you know, and the other thing about the whole uh, Bochy influence here, and as I, as I wrote in one of the games, it was, is it Bochy magic or, or Bochy genius or is it Bochy luck? Is that. You know, the players all look down there and say, there's this big old lug. He's He's got three World Series rings. You know, people keep asking, oh, so what does he say to y'all? What is he What is he doing? And it's like uh, Jonah Heim said the other day, well, he doesn't really say much. You know, he comes in the dugout. He says something funny to you every once in a while. He, uh, he does that. But he's always calm. He's, he's always in charge. And these guys know, as Tom Grieve told me one time when Billy Martin was the manager, he said, we would look down and see Billy and think, well, dang, we got a chance to win this game just because Billy's sitting down there. You know, we got the smartest manager in the game. I don't know if Bruce Bochy is the smartest manager in the game, but I tell you what, I'd, I'd roll my chances with him right now against just about anybody. I don't know how you, I don't know how you compare that when you look at all the things he's done. First manager ever to win three uh, American League or to win three League Championship Series with three different organizations. That that tells you something right there that when this guy go someplace it's not because of the you know obviously he, he does a good job picking them you know he said you know he told us yesterday if it if he didn't believe the rangers were going to be capable of going to world series he wouldn't have come back to manage them he wasn't coming back just to manage that's not what he missed i think there's a lot of of uh gambler in him he he he, he thrills to that kind of environment of being in these types of things that that really gets his juices going and uh, and he gets that now, and he'll get to do that now. For let's hope it's for whatever happens. I just hope it goes at least six games. To me, it's not a really a World Series. It's not a seven game series unless it goes at least six games. If it does that, it's not uh, a seven game series if it doesn't go six games. Is that what you just said? I said a lot of things. I don't know what I said. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't want to point out. I just want to say this you, to to the. To the the questions about Bruce Bochy and, and pitching and all of that, I, I'm just looking this up, and I know, Kevin, you've got some real interest in this because Montgomery and, and, uh, um, and Evaldi have combined for, what, uh, eight of the Rangers' nine wins, I think it is? Yeah. Um, or seven of, of, of the Rangers' nine wins. But there have been... 13 pitchers in Major League Baseball history that have won at least four games in a single um, postseason run. Nathan Uvalde now is one of those guys. But three of the others, I believe, Madison Bumgarner, Tim Linscombe, so two of the others, two of the other two of the other 11, or two of the other 12, were both Bruce, Bruce Bochy guys. He knows guys that he can ride, and he knows when he can ride them. And he had one of the all-time great postseason performers in Mad Bum. Um, and I think he feels like he has two of those weapons right now in, in Nathan Uvalde and in, in Jordan Montgomery. And he will ride them. I and he only has to ride them for another week uh, to, to get this to get a world championship. Yeah, he does. Uh, and, that, and that's the thing. It just goes back to what uh, everyone really needs to understand. You just have to get to the postseason in baseball. You, you get there, and stuff just happens. Baseball is different from uh, basketball and hockey. It's not as physical of a sport. Uh, it doesn't rely as much on talent. There are just things that happen. There's a, a little bit more of luck at play, and also there is the the advantage that a manager of that a level and with that kind of resume can bring to you. 
All right, that's going to do it for our Rangers segment of the podcast. We're going to move over now and talk about those Cowboys. Boy, they had one great weekend this last Sunday, didn't they, David? That was that might have been their greatest Sunday of the season. Well, uh, you oh oh Evan Evan wants a parting word on on the Rangers segment. And I I just think I I mean really I hats off to the NFL, and I know it was all coincidence, but. This Rangers-Astros series was epic, and it deserved a stage all unto itself, and it was fortunate. And I know the NFL, if they could go back and do this, they would not have done it this way. But fortunately, the Cowboys and Texans were both off because this became a baseball state, at least for a week. And I think the the state of the, the prominence of baseball is going to be bigger in this state going forward. Um and so they, I think it, it was fortuitous, too, that they didn't have to f- worry about the Cowboys or the Texans. And guys like Prescott could show up at Ranger games instead of uh, talking to you guys at practice. Inter- interesting note there. The Cowboys just announced they're moving Sunday's game to Friday night <laughs> at AT&T against the Rams. That's right. That's right. Get that game going right head to head with the uh, Rangers. You know, I wonder sometimes, David, uh, in all seriousness, how do you think that Jerry Jones uh, reacts to uh, the Rangers? I mean, I know it officially what he would say. He would say, oh, this is all great. Uh, Does he want anything detracting from uh, the Cowboys or does he feel like that, you know, a rising tide floats all boats? He does feel a rising tide floats all boats and will say that publicly repeatedly. And he does adhere to that overall philosophical view. That being said, I think he also feels it's important when there's a wave of interest on another team here that we just do something to remind everyone that we're still here too. Uh, so some of this is kind of drafting off, you know, the the excitement about the Rangers. And so to do that, you just don't shut down and stay quiet and leave the whole, uh, you know, megaphone to the Rangers at this point. You you do something and it, not not big. There's only so much you can do. Right. But you still uh, in your own way, get across that, hey, we're still here in the market. Don't forget about us without intruding on the excitement uh, that, that the Rangers are generating. So it'll be interesting this week. I, I would imagine um, J- Jerry will come up with something, some, some way over the next yeah. 10 days. <laughs> to well, well, and again, look, he can also say too, well, okay, this, this is a bit of a long game here. We'll, we'll seed the market this week. We're just coming off a buy. What can we do? But you know what? We're going to play Philly next week. And what's better than to have – this double header between the Rangers and Cowboys and Philly week. Uh, so I think he would love uh, if, if the Rangers play the Phillies because then also the day after that series is concluded, you have Eagles and Cowboys. So I, I think he would draft off of that. So it's still set up for him to uh, uh, get some uh, marketing pizzazz out of this. Yeah, no question about that. Well, you know, uh, it's it's funny. I haven't grown up in Houston, and as I was telling my uh, brother yesterday, who still lives here, both my brothers still live here in Houston. Um, you know, from from 1980 and before that, those are my memories of the Astros. Those are the teams I can still recite all their lineups. Uh, I don't really know that much about the Astros since then, except for you know when I I cover these games, uh, and so all my memories of the Astros are losers. Uh, and, and basically all the professional franchises that I grew up with were losers. Um, but now in this market, the Texans are so bad, uh, and so seemingly far away from being good. Uh, and the Astros have won two world series and they've been to seven, you know, postseason uh, 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 playoffs in a row there. The, you know, there, if there was a dynasty in baseball right now, people would say, tell you it was the Houston Astros. And I think this has become a baseball town down here because of that. Now, the flip side of that is, is that I don't know that that the, the how many World Series that the Rangers would win and they would still be it would still be a football town because the Cowboys I, have, have what they've done. 
I don't know at this point. I do. I, I, I mean, look, it is a different circumstance, right? Because the Oilers did leave here, and you've got what amounts to an expansion team that's never done anything. But I do know from what I from what I experienced over the last week, and, and really watching the Astros over the last couple of years, the the, the way this this town has reacted. Um, and there were a number of factors. Clearly, the fact that this team is entertaining and, and really, really good is chief among them. I think this town wrapped their arms around the Astros even stronger and got defensive uh, over the cheating scandal. Um, well, I, in seven straight years, right? So you sustained it. Seven, seven straight, straight years in the conference, yeah. And I did, I, in talking with some people about, you know, maybe the difference in the, in the crowds in, in, in Arlington versus the crowds in Houston – I did make the point that that these these folks have seven years of conditioning to what winning baseball looks like, what winning baseball moments are, what 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 the the key elements of a winning baseball atmosphere for fans, and I think that did show up kind of in the fan experience um, in, in the ballpark in both places when people were on their feet, when people were really really into things. But I don't have any doubt that Ranger fans, look, the atmosphere in 2011 and 2012 for most of those seasons in Arlington was pretty spectacular. I think Ranger fans have gone through that whole period of being traumatized after 2011, and they've really had a hard time letting it go. Uh, And I think at every point in time, they've been hesitant to ever step back into the arena and say, okay, I believe in this team. This is the kind of team that makes you believe in them again. And uh, look, it's important for the Rangers if they're going to make this more of a quote unquote baseball town and not just a town with a lot of baseball fans in it. um, It's important for them to have an extended run of success when you are what amounts to an expansion team and you don't have the same history as other teams, you've got to build your tradition with with achievements. And the one thing that I I feel like I come away from this thinking is you look at this team right now, and this was kind of stuff that I failed at trying to explain in my column this morning, but the franchise core is in really good hands with Corey Seager at the moment. Um, And Marcus Simeon, you look at the future and it's starting to play out with Josh Young and Evan Carter. And you even look at the ability to make deadline deals, which is a a two-part dance. One is you've got to have the talent in the system that others find attractive. And two, you've got to be willing to pull the trigger and say winning now is precious and winning this year is precious. And I think Chris Young and the Rangers organization demonstrated that ability. Now, you You're going to have to do that year over year because you're always going to have to address some issues. But I think this organization is in a position where it it may never be able to take away the the title of this being a Cowboys town, but they can certainly they can make a little bit of a dent. I think they can do that. All right. We're letting the Rangers creep into our Cowboys segment too much, but it was a good point. We need to talk about that, about whether you know what what will ever shake the, the Cowboys. I don't, like I said, I don't know that anything will ever shake the Cowboys in in uh, in North Texas and in Dallas in particular. But it's uh, I, it's what you're talking about. Yeah, because in the middle of a podcast, the day after the Rangers clinched the bid to the World Series, and the and the Cowboys are coming off of a bye week, we're saying uh, we're letting the Rangers creep too much into our Cowboys segment. Evan? Hi, David. Kevin. Just because you're the baseball writer doesn't mean we're going to spend the whole time talking about your job, Mr. The Whole World Revolves Around Me. I am the sun, and the entire galaxy is rotating around me, Evan Grant. We have David has a beat. It's called the Cowboys. We're gonna we're gonna let David talk about the Cowboys if that's okay with you. Is that all right? Anytime you want to let that start happening, go right ahead, Kevin. Wow. Man. Okay. Since since Evan thinks it's okay for us to talk about something besides the Raiders today, we're going to go ahead and do that. Uh, so, David, um, 
Where do you put the Cowboys right now? I mean, you know, we've talked about, you know, bad. Every NFL team has a bad loss during the season. And we thought the Cowboys' bad loss was the Cardinals. And then they got just smoked by the 49ers. And then the 49ers and the Eagles go out and have bad games and lose after that. Um, so do, are we – I'm going to ask this question. I know what the answer is going to be. Are we overreacting to these things? Of course we're overreacting. Well, that's what our job is to overreact. Uh, to these situations, but uh, and you wrote this, and I agreed with you 100 percent that the Cowboys were not on the same tier as the 49ers and Eagles after the, the Cowboys lost to the 49ers. Uh, do you still think that? Are you, you still think there's a step down uh, from the those two guys to the Cowboys? Oh, I don't know. Why don't you ask Evan? <laughs> <laughs> well, Evan, just, if I ask Evan that question, he just come back with some Ranger story. <laughs> I got another Ranger story to tell you. Uh, I'll just come back with this on my football expertise. Every team has a bad loss, but isn't this the time of year when every team has a bad loss? Like the last two weeks, it just feels like, you know, we've lost whatever semblance there was of, of, of anybody flirting with, with going 15 or in two or 16 and one. And they've, they've, the bad losses have come. It's just, it's, it's, it's almost like a, a natural occurrence in the NFL that like week six and seven crazy, stupid stuff happens. I don't know why that is, but that just seems like it, it, that seems a narrative to me. Well, you know, Mike McCarthy is always talking about September football, which is where basically every game you play, you're confronted with 30 to 35% of what a team does offensively or defensively are unscouted looks because these are the changes they made in the offseason. And so his point is the early part of the season is a little bit more erratic before teams establish who they are and what they do well. And so that is why you see the the 49ers destroy the Cowboys uh, and then come back and lose their next two games. Uh, Now both of those teams have two losses. Would you have envisioned that after seeing what the 49ers did to the Cowboys a couple of weeks ago? Now, I will say this, and Kevin, this goes back to your point. So why do I still say that, that the 49ers and the Eagles should be considered ahead of the Cowboys at this point? Well, the 49ers lost to some teams that aren't as good as them. The Cowboys were using the 49ers as a measuring stick. Everybody knows that Dallas, San Francisco, the Eagles, and potentially Detroit, who was now the flavor of the moment until Baltimore destroyed them this past weekend in the NFC, uh, you know, is in the conversation. And so um, you constantly create uh, a positive momentum and – but before the numbers take over and the season take over, you go, oh, wow, this this Detroit team really is different. Look at this. Uh, you know, with Dallas stumbling here, uh, you know, Cleveland does, San Francisco. Who's to say that Detroit isn't in the mix? And then, boom, they're down 28-0 before they even, you know, show a pulse uh, against Baltimore. Uh, you go, you, you look at the, the AFC, and it's, uh, oh, Buffalo has three losses at this point the last one to a New England team that hasn't been competitive for weeks. So you see this more frequently in September through mid-October than you do in December uh, in the NFL because you're still kind of sorting through things. And, um, And while, you know, now Philly is sitting atop the NFC, and that was an impressive victory against Miami, right? And what was the discussion going into that game? Oh, Miami, boy, watch out for them. You know, this is the this may be the best offense since the greatest show on turf. What happens? They score one offensive touchdown <laughs> in, in a big game against Philadelphia against an Eagles team that's been uh, up and down on both sides of the ball here early. So um, we'll know a little bit more. I think it'll start to settle out in the landscape um, you'll have a little better picture of it after a couple of weeks after Dallas goes to Philadelphia and plays their first game up there. Um, but when 
when the dust settles in the NFC, it's it's San Francisco, Philadelphia, Dallas are are the three teams at the top. Can a Detroit come in and, and be part of the conversation? Sure, but you have to see how their fast start plays out. And again, you don't think the conversation is different around the Lions this week than it was before what Baltimore did to them? So um, you have more swings and conversations and where teams rank early because you just don't have a large enough sample size yet. But you're about to get there. You are about to get there. And I'm just looking at the NFC standings right now. There are four teams in the entire NFC that are more than just a game above 500. You know, you got the 49ers yeah. at five and two, the Seahawks at four and two, the Lions at five and two, and uh, and then the Cowboys, of course, you know, at uh, at four and two, and the Eagles at six and one. So everybody else has, you know, a lot of losses, four, three, four, five losses already. Uh, it, it is already boiling down to what we know pretty much. Who those uh, the good teams are, and and they they kind of were the teams we figured going into the season, except for the Lions. The Lions are playing better, and the and as you said, the Dolphins are playing much better. They're the flavor of the moment. They have a really uh, buzzy offense. They got a lot of speed on that. I was looking at some of the, the next gen a lot. stats. Yeah, I'm looking at next gen stats the other day where they they have that thing where the fastest plays, you know, and I think of the top. Of the like ten fastest plays, like six of them are from Dolphins. You know, six or seven. They, yeah, yeah. They're just they're just unbelievable, and that, and that which shows you what you get from that. I I, I really think you know Tyreek Hill. The the, the 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 Chiefs tried to minimize that whole thing about oh yeah, well we don't really need him that much. I don't know. He's pretty good. You know, uh, he he. It, I don't think it's a coincidence that he goes from the Chiefs, the greatest offense in the league to the Dolphins, and all of a sudden the Dolphins are the greatest offense in the league. And that's not all on Tyreek Hill, but I'm going to give him a, a big chunk of credit for it. Yeah, so, he's outstanding. And and again, but again, Miami, and, and that's the same question I have about, you know, with, with Tua uh, in Miami and Jalen Hurts with Philadelphia. Philly is the cream of the NFC crop based off of what they did last year, based off of where they are this season. How can you make any other argument? But he's, you know, Jalen Hurts is already beat up. He played the second half of that game in a leg brace. Um, and because of their style, because he runs as much as he does, he exposes himself uh, to to injury more than a lot of other quarterbacks of, of the top teams. I mean, he's, he's going to take more hits than Brock Purdy. He's going to take more hips, hits than Dak Prescott. So... Can his body withstand that? Sure, but when you put yourself in harm's way that much, that can impact you. And and look, when when he was out last year, Philadelphia stumbled, and then after he got back, it took them a while to regain their footing. Now, they had enough time to do it, but that's the thing. And and, and you've seen San Francisco. People go, well, for, you know, don't worry about San Francisco's losses here. They just had a couple of injuries after after the Cowboys game. That's true. But they also play a style where those injuries, uh, I mean, injuries can take any team down depending on when they happen and, uh, you know, at what point of the season. So we'll see how it all plays out. But, yeah, I mean, look, San Francisco, Philly, and I think Dallas on that plateau just right behind them at the moment. I haven't seen anything to, to convince me it should be different right now. No, me neither. Uh, I will say that Jalen Hurts, who, who's been really terrific, I, you know, it's amazing. He has been. To see his rise uh, in the NFL from what he was in college, I, I was convinced that Jalen Hurts was just a really nice college quarterback, uh, not a great one even. You know, he's been much better in the NFL than he was in college. You know, and, and how often does that happen? Where a guy is just so? I mean, a lot of times it's the circumstances the guy's in, right? Like uh, like an Aaron Rodgers, he's playing at Cal. They're not any good. They're not going to be any good. So you can't get a good measure of what he is as a quarterback. You know, Jalen Hurts played for Alabama and Oklahoma. I mean, he, he was playing for two of the premier franchises, you know, in the, in college football. Franchises, funny, I would call them that. To, to the, you know, programs, let's say that. Uh, and then he goes to the NFL and he's even Freudian. better. Freudian, yeah. So it's uh, so he's even better there. But I will say his numbers this year have not been great. Uh, you know, his passer rating is not great this year so far. He struggled a little bit. I think maybe the injuries were uh, an issue with that. 
I, and, th- and to me, these kind of things only make it more incumbent upon the Cowboys to really put things together. They have not done that so far, David, with this offense. We, we have, we no, have not seen this offense come close to what we were supposed to expect of it. Would you say, David, that it's, it's performing at 50% efficiency, 60%, 40%? What would you say? I mean, what is the – what is the bar for this offense and what it should be? Is it is it a lot more than what they've shown so far? Well, again, I, I think it's built differently and the expectations are different than what they've been in the past. You know, those were explosive offenses that led the league. I think they want a more efficient offense this year, but they want one that's in the top 10 and they have the talent to, to be there. Um, I would say, you know, you point to their red zone. They have not been good in the red zone. That is down. But here's the other thing we don't talk about. Red zone percentages are down across the league. And scoring is down across the league. So the, the Cowboys at this stage are reflecting the trend, the downward trend. They're not actually leading the trend, but they're reflecting it in some ways. And, and two, uh, now these last two games have been very different, but Dallas was leading the league in third down conversions before this. Uh, before these last two games. So it was doing some things. I think right now their biggest issue going forward is they're getting no space in the run game. Um, And if they don't have the run game and the play action to uh, win the time of possession the way they want to uh, with this defense to play to the strength of their defense, I think you know, that that to me is is the biggest question mark with them going forward. So they they need to be better in the run game. And I think once they are, um, I, I think you'll see more opportunities down the field in the passing game than you've seen. Yeah, this is going to be my issue ongoing. It was going into the season. It still is, David. You know, we talked about what could the Cowboys add at the trade deadline. I'd like to just see them get a power back. You know, if, if your offensive line is going to struggle as much as this one has to create holes, you need to get somebody who can make their own hole. Uh, and the Cowboys yeah. don't have that. Uh, and that is certainly, we've talked about that ad nauseum. That is not Tony Pollard's style. Uh, it's not Rico Dowdle's style. It's not Deuce Vaughn's style. They're, they're not big enough to do that. You know, I can no. remember, remember back when the, the question was, who do you want uh, to uh, uh, be your running back? Was it Marion Barber? Or I guess it was Julius Jones was the uh, was the other, and, yep. and Jones was a much quicker back. But Marion Barber was a, a violent running. He was the hammer. Yep. He was the hammer, and and, uh, and to his detriment, bless his heart. Uh, but uh, the issue to me is like that was just a no brainer at the time that this is the guy you have to have back there. I just really think the Cowboys need to reconsider on that front. But I'm sure they're not going to take my advice. They never do. Well, trading deadline next week, and and if they do make a move, I, I think it's it, it's going to be like we've seen in past years, where they get a Jonathan Hankins, you know, to kind of solidify their depth in the defensive line and actually be a, a starter, a nice rotational player for them that can add something. Um, you know, you look on offense. I, I think you're looking at uh, a tight end. You know, a veteran tight end could help you a little bit. Uh, I think uh, in, in that very young room. Um, like you say, a power back, but, but look, when you say that everyone goes to Derrick Henry, right? They're not going to pay at that level and assume that contract, uh, with what they have coming up and who they have to pay. So you're, you're talking about a, uh, you know, a, a lesser guy, a more manageable guy and, and defensively, uh, you know, you would still say linebacker here with Leighton Vandresh being out and, and while corner is not a need right now, I would argue, Every team in the league is just one corner injury away from being in a really difficult spot. So I, I think those are some some spots to look at. I know people go, well, what about a receiver? Like, you know, Philadelphia went out and got Julio Jones just before they made the trade for uh, the starting safety bird uh, with Tennessee uh, earlier this week. I would say you have that veteran presence here with Cooks uh, where Lamb is in his development. Um, you know, Gallup, just the talent. I, I don't think they're going to, and knowing you're going to have to pay C.D. Lamb going forward, I, I, I don't see them, um, certainly a, a big name uh, veteran wide receiver, but, but, but 
that that could be a benefit to them as well. Yeah, I don't see them making any big trades, uh, but you know, it doesn't mean you can't make a trade that that makes a difference. As as sure. David cited the Jonathan Hankins trade, that made a difference. It's made a difference this year. That you know, it doesn't have to. You don't have to be trading for you know uh, Patrick Mahomes. You can go out and, and make a deal that can make a, a, a difference in your team. That's one of the things I though I, I love about the Eagles uh, and Howie Roseman. He just he just will always tinker. He will always be, as Bill Parcells used to say, he's turning the roster. Uh, and and that's what how he does, uh, which is just really impressive to me. So uh, anyway, that's going to do it for our, the Cowboys part of our podcast. We're going to move over now and talk a little bit for just a few minutes about uh, the Mavericks season starting, the, the uh, star season starting. You know, we've we've uh, uh, the Mavericks, as we're taping this on Tuesday, uh, they will be uh, having their opener against the Spurs. And uh, the great Wimby, uh, Wimbanyama, will be the uh, is is now Pop's newest centerpiece. You know, has there ever been a? I, I don't want to take away from what Greg Popovich has done uh, as a basketball coach, one of the greatest coaches ever, obviously. But my my gosh, how many great centers does the guy get to have? Uh, you know, he started out with Shout David Robinson. You got Tim. Du- I know that we're calling Tim Duncan a power forward, but he, but you know, he's had he's had uh, David Robinson, Tim Duncan, and now he gets Victor Wimbanyama. I mean, it's, holy cow! It's just it seems a little unfair to me. I don't know. It is, but also I would say in in today's NBA, you know, that's built from the outside in. He's still been able to build teams from the inside out and get the right pieces around those guys and still make yeah. it fit in today's game and and kind of adapt to where the game is. So it's uh, yeah, I, I I did find it interesting last week where I guess uh, Steve Kerr, who coached with him, talked about how uh, uh, he thought you know Wimbenyama coming in now at this point of of Pop's coaching career would uh, energize him. And uh, Popovich had fun with that, saying, "Oh, do I need to be energized? What's going on?" You know? <laughs> so, so typical Pop being uh, combative in uh, in every way, and the contrarian. But yeah, he's he's a fascinating talent, and you know, Kevin, you'll remember this name, and and I haven't seen enough of of Wimbenyama yet, but but just in the the skill set in advancing where the game is, th- this is almost like you know. Ralph Sampson 5.0, right? I mean, yeah. and again, I don't think that'll resonate with a lot of people. And, and Ralph Sampson didn't really revolutionize the game and where it went. He was, he was a guy who's almost, you know, probably about a decade too far ahead of where the game was to have the impact because there's no one ready to come right after him to kind of continue that. But uh, you know, he, he was a, a big guy with a skill set that people hadn't seen before, and, and Wimbenyama's just taken that to the next level. Um, you know, just how he moves. Um, you know, just watching some in the preseason, just the remarkable, you know, blocks he's able to get on the perimeter uh, that you don't see guys being able to make because of his wingspan and his timing and his athletic ability to play off, but then use that length uh, to jump up and block shots that other players in the league can't do. Uh, he, he's going to be a handful, especially early for for some of these veterans in the league to adjust to. Yeah, there's no question about that. You know, you bring up Ralph Sampson. I, always kind of a, a bittersweet kind of thing to think about Ralph, of course, played for the Houston Rockets alongside Akeem Olajuwon, who went on yep. to a far, far greater career uh, in the NBA than, than Ralph had. Um, you know, when Ralph came into the league, I guess he was, what, 7'4", very thin, mm-hmm. uh, so, you know, kind of a, 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 built a little bit like David Robinson from the standpoint of, you know, the slender hip guy, not a kind of guy who's going to go down there and really anchor the post for you like you would think a big guy would do. David, much beefier, muscu- more muscular than Ralph. I can remember back then, you know, they would talk about when Ralph was at Virginia that you know, the guy thinks he's a guard. And that was a bad thing back then. You know, everybody, oh, yeah. everybody was thinking that, oh, Ralph Sampson is going to be the next Kareem Abdul-Jabbar because he's 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 really tall and willowy and Boy, he can dominate like that. Well, he was never that player. He didn't come close to being Jabbar. But people always complained you, about how he wasted his size advantage. You know, absolutely. But the problem for Ralph was that he just wasn't very big. It was easy to bounce him out of the post. It was easy to 
put a hip on him and, and roll him out. And so, uh, yeah, the Mavericks. Now we really get to see our Luca and Kyrie Irving going to be able to fit and take this team forward uh, because of the timing of last year's trade, because of load management and the guy. You know, even when they were together, they didn't play that many games together. Um, they've got to they've got to hit the ground running and, and build something here. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't have to be immediate, but you almost got the sense that their time together last year was wasted, that they didn't even play together enough to get a true sense on, on how to proceed. Um, and, and you haven't seen that in the preseason either. So they've got to, to make up for lost time, in my opinion, early this season. Yeah, it's, it's a mess. I, I just, I, I don't know another way to describe it because they went out this year. They, they, they've gotten two years in a row, two completely different teams, except for the fact that, you know, Luka Doncic is in the middle of it. Uh, both times. Otherwise, it, it looks like those years when you know Rick Carlisle was stumbling around with rosters, and you know Mark was Mark Cuban was you know reassembling it all around him every year, and he was trying to come up with something. Yeah. And, and and then that was a desperation move last year when they went out and got Kyrie Irving. You know they they felt like they had to win now. Well, they didn't. They you know they didn't win at all. Didn't even make the playoffs. And so uh, and so now they're going to try to make that work. I know that people still think that oh, when you've got these two guys, it'll it, you know that's that's they're both capable of going off for forty points a night. But it's it's I can't get past the fact, David, that it's two point guards. It's not two. It's not a point guard and, a, and an off guard. You know, I can see that more if it were that. But when both guys have to have the ball in their hands, you know, to really be as effective as they need to be, I still just don't know how that works. And now they're they've tried to surround them. With a bunch of guys who are really tall, rangy, athletic, I think that the Derek Lively draft pick had everything to do with Wimbanyama and and trying to combat him and have somebody who would have a little bit of the range that could guard him. And so we'll we'll see if that can all work and, and put all that together. But you know they're they're going to be starting down. I I I really thought that the Mavericks you know arrow was pointing up the last couple of years. I I just don't see that this year. Uh, we, you know, we'll see. I know we need to wrap this up, uh, but yeah, we're, we're going to see. And, and this may be the pairing where, you know, you, I, I think you touched on it where everyone talks about, oh, when these two guys are on the court together, you know, just, just fill out the rest of the roster. The fact you have these two guys on the court, well, maybe what's best for this team is a large percentage of their time is not both of them on the court at the same time, because they are both. Uh, two players that that want to have the ball in their hands, and that's when they're most effective. So, but you still they're going to have to be on the court together. So you have to come up with the formula on what is it? What percentage of the time are they alone, and this team works around them? And what percentage of the time are they both on the court? And then how does that work? Uh, and, and you've got to do that in games to to get everyone's buy in, and, and they just haven't done that based on uh, how the second half of last season unfolded. Yeah, they're just it's that's the thing they keep talking about it, but we didn't see it during the regular season last year. We didn't see it in the preseason this year. It's like when is this going to work? I mean, you know, I don't expect immediate chemistry, but a lot of times you you make a trade, you bring somebody in, and you go, oh yeah, here we go. After a week or so, this looks pretty good. It, it still doesn't look pretty good for the Mavericks, and yeah. uh, and you know you can talk about and I agree with what you said. I think that that. Probably the best thing is for them not to be playing on the court at the same time. But in the fourth quarter, you're going to want both of them on the floor at the same time, and they're both going to want. To yeah, be they on make the that floor. argument to sit one of them in the fourth quarter. That's not going to go over well. No, so got to work through all that. Yeah. Whereas the, the the stars also off to a pretty good start. They're farther along in what their team is and who they are and how to play. And you've seen that from them early this season. They got a lot of uh, real hockey experts, not like anybody on this panel. Uh, a lot of hockey experts picking them the stars to win it all. Uh, yep. there's, a, there's a lot of feeling out there that they that they uh, have a really good roster. Of course, you've got it in Jake Ottinger, a, a really nice young goalie who who struggled in the playoffs last year. People felt like those were just mostly growing pains. That he has the potential to be a really top flight uh, goalie. I would think that this year maybe the uh, stars would look at a little bit of load management and not uh, have him play as many games. He played more games in goal last year, I think, than, than anybody that was in the playoffs. And I thought it showed. I don't think he was as sharp uh, o- over the, the course of the playoffs. And maybe 
they'll uh, do something different with him. But they have a lot of star power. You know, Jim Nilla's really done a great job assembling that roster and putting it together. Um, and I was talking to Sean McFarland, uh, who's also out here in Houston with us covering the, the Rangers, um, about the the stars. And, and uh, he was talking about how much he really likes, you know, Tom Gillardi, uh, the star's owner, and, and his willingness to, to do what's necessary. You know, in hockey, you're not spending nearly as much money as you are in baseball and, uh, and in football. Uh, but he's done a good job of backing up whatever it is that Jim Mill wants to do. And I'd say the same thing. I, to me... He's certainly the most underrated uh, owner in this town. It's hard not to be underrated when you've got uh, Mark Cuban and Jerry Jones in the same town. Uh, They're not underrating their abilities either. All right, that's going to do it for our podcast this week. We thank you for uh, coming and listening. We appreciate that. And uh, come back next week. We'll have a little bit more to tell you about where the Rangers are in their uh, World Series sojourn, and at the very least tell you who they're playing. Uh, and then we'll also the Cowboys will have played another game, and we'll have another better idea of where they are this season. So from everybody in here to everybody out there, thanks, and we'll see you next time.